Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1994 film Three Colors Red. So let's step into Baird Fisher's Video Store. Baird, how you doing? I'm doing great. Baird, I got to tell you, when we started doing this, when you first said we're going to watch a trilogy, I was a little nervous, even though I had seen Blue and liked Blue. Because my fear was, if I'm not into these movies, this is going to be a long month of not only watching films, but like thinking about things to talk about. And I was I was a little nervous that these just weren't going to land right for me. Mm. Those uh, those fears were not needed. Uh, I feel like every one of these is like, well, maybe this is the best one. And maybe this is like, I don't even know what to make of how much I, how great I think these are individually as movies and as a piece. Um, so I'm really excited to talk about this. One other thing I'll say about this movie before we get going, this is the far more most, uh, by far the most talky movie of the three. Mm-hmm. Um, I noticed this taking notes because it's, it's hard to take notes on things in a language. I don't know. Cause I have to keep looking up cause I can't just hear the, uh, the French and pull it out. And usually with, with, um, both blue and white i never needed to pause the movie to write something but this one i kept pausing because i'm like well i want to get this written down this is an important thing that this person's saying so which makes sense that if this the theme of this film is fraternity it makes sense that we're going to need some conversation or missed conversation which this movie is is hugely about uh but to get started i assume you saw this movie in 94 when it came out because you were already on the kieslowski and three colors train is that correct yeah, I think that's probably right. Um, yeah, yeah, I would say I'll, 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 I'll say yes. <laughs> okay, is this something you had revisited since then, or was this something that existed in the '90s for you and kind of stayed there? Yeah, that's exactly right. It, I, I had not revisited it, um, and there's one of those films where I probably there's one or two images that stuck in my head. Um, I vaguely recalled for some reason the Geneva setting somehow stuck in my head, but otherwise, yeah, I haven't, I hadn't been back to it since then. Um, so that's interesting to think about. I want to come back to that idea. Um, but before that, I was thinking about after having watched these three films in such close proximity, do you think of these as three separate films? Do you think of this as one project or statement and I bring this up in part because, you know, we talk about how lists are silly, um, but the sight and sound list came out last week. And it's always interesting. How do they deal with something like this or to a lesser degree, the Godfather movie? Sometimes they look at them as one film that has three parts. Sometimes they look at these as, you know, each individual films. And I realize the answer is, of course, they're both. But how do you think about this? It's a re- it is a really good question, Sam. And my my inclination is to say that it's hard for me to separate them, even though I think they are very different films. Uh, quite deliberately, including Zosie's party, he used different cinematographers for each film because he didn't want them all to look the same, aside from the color scheme. Um, so you know, I have no trouble saying to people these films stand alone. But if you were to say to me, okay, do you want to put Kislowski on your great films list i would say yes and then if you were to say well what would you put on the list i would say three colors okay I, there's just something because it was and i think it's different from the godfather in that you know the godfather is only accidentally a trilogy i mean basically you have godfather one and two because um coppola had so much footage uh he just kind of cut it in half 
And then three kind of comes along um, almost as an afterthought, you know, many years later. So I, I think three colors is unique. I, I really can't think of any other so deliberately and tightly made trilogies of, you know, film. I mean, there's lots of trilogies, lots of thematically linked films that certain directors made. But the way this was conceived as really a box set. Um, so it's really hard for me to think of them apart from each other. And the other reason it's hard for me to think of them apart from each other is don't make me choose. Right. Don't make me say, you can only take one of the three colors to the, your desert island. Which one should, will it be? Um, it, man, that would just kill me. Yeah, I was thinking about these as separate films and as a and as a collection. And part of me wishes I could forget these movies entirely because I'd love to watch them again in a different order and to see like, well, would they work if you went, you know, red, white, blue, if you went white, red, blue, you know, like, like if, if you mix them up because they're there are definitely, I mean, this film has the coda to the series um, at the end, but the way Kieslowski works with time, that might be interesting if that was the end of the first movie or the second movie, like there's lots of different ways you could do that. Now I think there's obviously an intent because one of the other senses I got from this is I feel like, the earlier movies were teaching me how to watch the next movies too. They were somehow mm-hmm. training me. Um, blue stands alone pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, and blue helps me think about and prepare me to watch white. Mm. White helps me prepare me to watch red because white asks some different questions. It makes me think about time differently. Um, and then red has a lot of interesting things about time and, and, uh, and you know, and some of this stuff. So uh I mean, I think there is obviously a, a sensibility to the to to the order, uh, to the order of these films. So I'm curious when you watched this again this past week after what 25 years or or more, um, what jumped out at you watching this with fresh eyes? Well, before I answer that question, Sam, I, I want to say one thing about the coda, uh, and that is the coda was the first thing that Kislowski shot. Mm-hmm. So. So, you know, when you when you ask that really interesting question about does the order in which you watch them matter? And, you know, I'm, I'm you're tempted to say, first of all, well, of course it does because of the coda. But then you can say, well, yeah, but that was also the starting point. It's like, how, you know, you can tell a story in any in any order you want. So whether you tell the story, you know, so if you were to watch it with Red first, it's sort of like, OK, so how did these people come together? And then you kind of back up and maybe you watch white. And I'm, I think it'd be interesting to watch them in reverse order, actually. Um, OK, so what what struck me about this film was what re- revisiting it was um, I don't think I remembered. And maybe it's because I didn't fully appreciate it at the time. I don't think I fully grasped or remembered how intricate the film is. The, you know, I, I, I remember that it revolved around the, the, the judge and Valentine. I remember they talked a lot. I remembered a lot of night scenes, but I think I had never, no recollection at all of Auguste, you know, the law student, and, and simply the, the way in which the, 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 the web of connections is just so intricate. Um, and it, it's, it's interesting because I watched this in the afternoon and that evening, my wife and I watched a, a very good film called uh, Disobedience, um, which I, I recommend it's on Netflix. And it's a good film. And, and we finished watching and Amy and I had a little bit of conversation about it. 
but I felt like saying, but it was so simplistic. It, it had a key theme and it had these characters. And even though there were references to things that happened in the past, there were no flashbacks. Um, yeah, you had to do a little bit of work as a viewer to, to kind of figure out what happened in the past, but not much. It was a thoughtful film and had an interesting theme. I really liked it, but I felt like I had moved from reading uh, a college level textbook to a sixth grade primer. Hmm. I think that, that, that so that's what also came. I came away with this time is Kislowski is so um, he's so not not just intricate, but he is so economical. You know, one of the things you learn with you, if you have if you have the Criterion Channel and you watch some of the extras, some of the things you learn are what he's taken out of the film. And it's it's amazing what he's taken out. And just as an aside, because I'll forget this otherwise. One thing he took out was a scene that's referred to in the conversation between Valentine and her and her boyfriend, Michelle, where Michelle talks about the terrible time they had in Poland when the car broke down and he was helped by a really nice guy. He was helped by Carol Carol. Oh, it, was, it, it was a scene that Kozlowski actually filmed and then and then took out of white anyway. So that's a long answer to your question. But I, I think it really has to do with it connects with what you said earlier that I felt by the time I got to red that I'd really been taught how to read a Kozlowski film. And I think when I saw it 25 years ago, I appreciated it, but I didn't really know how to read it. Well, I, I want to go back to the uh, you talked about the Criterion um the Criterion Channel extras, and uh, clearly we watched some of the same stuff because the the one with the I don't know if he's the film's I think he must be the film's editor, because um, he talked about multiple moments where they had shot stuff much longer and kind of the the magic of editing, but also the reasons for it. You know, mm-hmm. like like we don't need to see this. It's actually better if you don't see it. And I mean, he even I think used the words "make the viewer do the work," make the viewer. <laughs> do like put a and b and c together to realize well if he abandons his dog and then has his dog later (laughs) you you need to figure out for yourself when he stopped in his car and sat there he rethought what he did and went back and got his dog where you know i look at some of that stuff and i think my my initial reaction is well they cut that for time or for flow Mm. but not for any intent beyond that and clearly the editor was was saying no no this was cut this way because we wanted you to have to do this work and and that that's a that's an important part of it you don't get to see everything you get to see exactly what we need you to see or want you to see and that kind of blew my mind like i I don't think of editing that way i think of editing often as um kind of in the studio notes way how can we trim this down so the people paying for this are going to be okay with it but there were, there are two things I loved about that extra. One is, um, as as you and listeners know, I'm kind of a, of a Wells fanatic, and Orson Wells said that films were created in the editing room. Uh, so anytime, but anybody talks about the art of editing, I'm I'm all ears. The other thing I want to say is I think this has a lot to do um, with with where it comes in the film, and that is when August appears with the dog at the very end. I never. In a, in a million years thought it was a continuity error. Mm-hmm. I, I immediately thought, oh, I see, he went back and got the dog. And so it's an interesting question to me is why? Why? You know, because if, in, in, in other films, I would have said, oh, come on, did they not remember that he just left the dog? But I think it's the way that Kislowski has you thinking by the end of the film, and that is there are connections. So sometimes those connections, I want to talk about these later. Sometimes these connections are repetitions. Oh, I saw that before. And this connects these two things. 
This is kind of a repetition of absence. Like, oh, the dog was there and now the dog is here. How did it get there? And, mm-hmm. and, and you, you trust Kozlowski enough to say, this, this thing, this film is made too carefully for this to have been such a blatant error. And it's not a mystery. It just tells us something about the character that he wants us to be part of and not simply show it to us. So I, I agree. I think, you know, if you watch that extra, you actually see, you know, you see the scene where he goes back and gets the dog. And I'm like, no, it, it, they're right. It's much better not showing it. Um. Absolutely. And and I love the fact that you can actually see how they originally filmed it is so interesting because because what you see is the quality like, oh, this is so much better. It's so much better done this way. I actually don't want that extra piece. Um, So if we're thinking about this as part of the three colors trilogy, the the theme or kind of French Revolution ideal of this film is fraternity Um, and you know, in the same way that uh, blue is the anti-tragedy and white is the anti-comedy. Um, <clears throat> this is a movie which is largely about misconnections between people, mm-hmm. um, both misconnections that we're seeing in real time and realizing that people's lives are filled with missed connections you know as as we learn the judge's story um you know that there are there are sort of those moments as well um this movie leans really heavily on an idea that i think is going to come up again and again and again which is the difference between fate and chance and choice mm-hmm. um that that is a without being heavy-handed that is all over this movie um oh, and what's interesting is it's all over what they're talking about without anybody saying it too clearly you know that that but 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 it 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 sits there um another thing that's interesting about thinking about connections and relationships is how much of the missed connections or connections are mediated through technology and media which mm-hmm. seems like something Kieslowski is really interested in it's so fascinating to see this in 1994 and think Man, if he had lived, just wait. Like, like this is this is not only pre-smartphone. This is pre-cell phone, really. Like, like you know, uh, this is this is such an interesting movie to think about the telephone in and how different um, this movie would be. We, you know, there's often people make the statement of like, oh, this movie would be so different in the cell phone age. It's like actually, this movie would be re- powerfully speaks to that without it existing because it's all about how we have these things that are supposed to connect us, but maybe they don't. Well, you know, uh, Kuzowski called this, uh, he said a couple of things about this film. One thing he says, is it's a film about communication that disappears. Um, and if you think about the fact that Valentin really only has a couple of unmediated conversations, very brief ones with the proprietor, Shay Joseph, a couple of exchanges with the photographer. Otherwise, you know, her really important connections are mediated and the communication does disappear. You have those frustrating exchanges with Michelle. Uh, and then you have, you know, the conversation with both her mother and her and her brother. Uh, brother is another character they cut out of the film. He does have a brief appearance in the first in the first cut. Um, and so yeah, it's it, it is about mediating. And it is, if you think about the opening of each of the three films, Kislowski said he was kind of interested in these sort of technological bases of society that we take for granted so you know so in blue you have the undercarriage of the car uh in white you have the um suitcase on the conveyor belt and here in probably the most sophisticated and extended of those shots you have the 
the the, tel- the communication from England over to to Geneva. So yeah, he, I, I think it really that that's why the film has so much talking um, uh, that's not mediated because that's where Kazowski wants to see the, whether the, the real communication can actually occur. And it's interesting to watch the judge and Valentine kind of verbally spar with each other, kind of uh, in, in, in a way, it's like uh, he has the upper hand in one conversation, she kind of has the upper hand in another conversation, and then they sort of have a conversation in which they are, are, are equals. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just wonderful to watch that develop. Well, and it's interesting because so many of the phone conversations you watch are ended abruptly by somebody having to go or hanging up mid conversation. But when the judge and Valentine are there or together, there's such long conversations because you can't just mm-hmm. shut off the conversation. The person is still there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, I think it's interesting thinking about the, the, the role of the telephone here. So many missed calls, um, and it, it reminded me of this thing I'd forgotten about, like the the anxiety of missing a phone call. Mm-hmm. So there's this moment where uh, August is talking to Karin. Um, I, oh, it's the phone call they're listening in on. And he says, if I'm not there, it's just because I went to buy cigarettes. And there's the sense when he's coming back and he hears the phone ringing, but can't get there. Yes. And then he calls back and it's in the, the line is busy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, that's something that we supposedly have solved with the fact that we all carry phones around with us, but clearly we haven't actually solved that because we're no, we're no better in our arguably, you know, worse, uh, some of these things. Now, another thing that, and maybe this is accidental as me being an American, but whenever somebody, uh, dials a phone because the, the tones are different than what we have here, I'm never sure if I'm hearing a ringtone or a busy signal that also causes me anxiety of like are is someone going to pick up or am i supposed to know what this tone means i think i like that ends up being very powerful like just the mystery of the sounds that i'm hearing i, I want to go back to what you said about you know when you're in a conversation you just can't stop it the way you can a phone a phone call it's interesting that you know these conversations take place in the judge's house and um one of the things he says when valentine leaves i think it's the first time he says uh don't close the door and, and that house is the series of thresholds. And, and we should mention one of the most fantastic shots in the film is the first time she enters the house. Okay, first of all, I thought initially we were getting a shot of the judge coming to the door. That was what I thought was happening first. And then I thought, oh no, it's a shot of Valentine going in. And then she enters the frame. So you're like so so who it so who is who is making this journey where where exactly are we so it's amazingly disconcerting and it gives you a sense that you are in fact entering a labyrinth or maybe better yet given the, what the judge is doing that you're at the center of a spider's web um, and it's just one of those shots where I, I had to watch it a couple of times it's just it's it's astonishing and and it just t- tells you that you know she's going deep into something that you don't just easily retreat from. And of course, there's many, there's a couple of times in that conversation where she does go to leave and then she turns around and comes back. It's like, you know, she, she can't stop. Um, another scene that I think is really interesting about um, discontinuity. And again, this would look so different in 2022, but, but you could easily shoot the same scene. I love the record store 
or the, the the music store scene where everybody is on their own. They're like the headphones coming from the ceiling and everybody's listening. And sometimes I, it's, it seems like they're listening to the same thing, but don't, you don't know what other people are listening to. So there again, it is in it, but it also at the same time feels like the most crowded place in the world. So you have pro- physical proximity. You're basically touching other people, but everybody is in their entirely own programmed world, which is, I mean, that would be through screens now. I mean, this would be now people on a subway train all looking at their phone, you know, crammed in, but not really aware of the people around them. But um, that felt like an oddly prophetic scene as well in terms of the like the misconnect. And, and then the fact that you have Valentine and August right there. I mean, they're they're against standing right next to each other almost. But but, you know, of their of their near misses, that's the cl- the closest they ever get physically and they couldn't be more worlds apart actually there's one other place i I, uh one other place where they're close physically i didn't realize this till my second time and that is uh he's coming out of the cafe she's going in Mm. uh he's got this that package of marlboro red marlboro cigarettes um i want to say a couple more things about the record store scene uh one is it reminded me of the lobster uh in the scene when uh, rachel weiss and colin farrell are, but but they are, it's, they're listening together, right? Mm-hmm. So it's actually linking them. The other thing is, um, I don't know if you, did you, I don't know if you remember the CD she's buying. Yes. Uh, it's, it's Van Budenmeyer. Now, Van Budenmeyer is the pseudonym for Preisner, uh, who does scores all of Kosowski's films. And uh, he takes a minute to, to you, you glimpse the, the Van, Van Budenmeyer's face on the CD cover. We saw that earlier at the judge's house. Uh, the judge has the LP of Van Budenmeyer. And I remember when I first came up, I actually stopped. I stopped the film and I started Googling because I couldn't tell with what I was looking at. And I thought for some reason because money was being exchanged. I thought maybe it was a Swiss franc note, uh, a Swiss franc note, and maybe it was like Rousseau. And then I realized later on, no, no, it's Van Budenmeyer. So you have one more connection that, um, you know, otherwise you, you don't, you, Kazowski you, relies on us to notice that. I mean, he does he does linger on the image in the judge's house for a few seconds to tell you, pay attention to this. But then he doesn't come back to it. He wants you to come back to it. Well, and it's not like it's such a recognizable face where I mean, I knew that those two faces were the same. And I thought, well, that's interesting. So clearly she she was listening to the thing he had out. And it leads you to wonder, like, well, is that why she was listening to it? Was she listening to it because she saw that in his in his house? So then she was like that drew her to that or again is this like a chance a, a chance doubling or mm-hmm. or something like that and things like that i thought are really cool and there's another <clears throat> another criterion short where they go through a lot more of those things where it's like you know she's in ballet class and if you look mm-hmm. at august's apartment there are these big ballet paintings yeah. and there's all i mean there's all of this stuff if you want to study the background of this where uh, again that things you see in one place you see in another place mm-hmm. um you we also see along with the the telephone we also see media used a lot so a lot is conveyed through newspaper mm-hmm. a little bit through the tv um mm-hmm. so you mentioned like mark uh uh valentine's brother mark is does not appear in the final cut of the film you hear him on the phone you see him in the newspaper you you know she describes him you know as being able to bring a tv to the judge um mm-hmm. and he seems like a like a 
and she tells a story about him. So he seems like a fully realized character, even though he's not a character. Michelle, in the same way, mm-hmm. you know, only exists as, as a a voice on the other end of the the line, except at the very opening of the film when you see him punching in numbers into a phone. So you have whole characters that are that exist only through uh, only through media. And then the the biggest example of this that is I think is really interesting is the the uh, Valentin billboard. You know, in the city, which is this huge, huge uh, street level billboard that's, you know, 25 feet high at this intersection. Um, and you realize there's this great scene where August is waiting at the light and he's looking at it. And you and you realize, like, that's kind of the only time that he's really looked at her. And it's mediated through this, you know, advertisement that she's modeling for. And then you get later the judge also at that intersection mm-hmm. also looking at it. Yeah, we, which which obviously you know it, it puts them together in this triangle in which uh, August doesn't even know he's part of a triangle, and of course it establishes both their relationship to Valentine and the, and their relationship to each other. You know the the remarkable parallels between the judge's life and August's life, and also you know a suggestion that um, Valentine and the judge missed each other by forty years, um, but. Valentine and August will be able to get together in a way that Valentine and the judge could not. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, what I love about this movie too, is we have all this misconnection via media, but as you hinted at or, or, or talked about, there's also all of this misconnection based on setting space and time. Mm-hmm. Um, this is such an intricately shot movie. I mean, I thought about uh, Tati's playtime where it's like, man, the work they must have put in to be like, as the camera is panning across and we are f- tracking with Valentine in the background, we have to have Augustine Karn and we have to see his vehicle and we have to see this, you know, or, um, you know, the, the, the coolest thing is how he teaches you about space. He introduces um, settings we're going to see later. Um, so the, the fact that you get unbroken shots from August's apartment out into the street, down to the street and back up to Valentine's apartment um, is like, that's such a, that he's teaching us the space. So then later when someone's looking out the window, you understand how very close they are and how, how all of these, you know, um, near misses can happen. I am so very glad that he had the producer he had who spared no expense because um, they could have shot it in the studio. It's cheaper. Um, and they found this location and they loved it. You know, perfect location. And But the woman that lived in Valentine's apartment, you know the story, uh, Sam, she would let them use the apartment for two months on the condition they put her up in the most expensive hotel in Geneva and uh, paid for all of her meals, uh, paid for the mini bar, and there was something else. It was it was ruinously expensive, um, but but the direct, but the producer said, but that but it was the right space. It was it was the spot we had to have. And of course, the other expense that you get when you use that space is crane shots. Mm-hmm. Crane shots are the most expensive, at, that, at least at that time, were the most expensive shots to produce. So. How can I put this? It doesn't look like an expensive movie, but there's a lot going on there to achieve that look. And I, I, I have to say, um, it, you have to have that real Geneva space. And I think of all the films 
this one, I mean, obviously you get Paris in blue and you get Warsaw in white, but I feel like this is a film where I really felt like the Geneva space was especially important. Yeah, and 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 the crane shot is so important because it it creates this kind of god's eye view also this voyeuristic view which is if the judge is i mean the judge is an audio voyeur and you know maybe a godlike figure you know with literally being a judge somebody who you know judges right and wrong truth and untruth um so so those shots are so important i also love how again this is one of those things you have to pay attention to but how he introduces spaces that are going to be important later early on so for example the spot where the billboard eventually shows up you see that at least once and maybe twice you see that intersection you see the blank scaffolding and then later on that's where the billboard shows up or you see the church in the background and then later on she goes into that church when she's um going after rita so like i i this maybe this is is to your point like I feel like I understand these two neighborhoods. And I don't know how they connect because I don't know how far apart they are. But mm-hmm. if I were in uh, Augustine Valentine's, if I was on that corner, like I get where everything is. And I feel that way about, you know, where the judge lives as well a little bit. Like, oh, if you look out this window, this is the street. You'll see this mm-hmm. and this and this. Um, so, so it creates that setting because that makes the um, the near misses even more upsetting almost. Like, how can you keep not meeting? <laughs> because of that so along with setting in space when we talked about this earlier this is such a movie about time um both timing in terms of the near misses but also kind of notions of like repeating cycles of story and time so we get this very slow reveal of the doubling of august story and judge kern's story Mm -hmm. um the coolest thing is like we see the we see August do things like when he drops the book and we get this whole story of oh that was the question on the test and then at the end of the movie the judge not knowing that story tells his own story and i had to do it like the first time through i did like a double take like wait a minute like that happened here that didn't happen to you but then i realized like oh there's actually their stories are so remarkably doubled you have kind of uh, the betrayed love you have the dropped book you have the fountain pen right mm-hmm. she gives him the fountain pen as a gift and we see the fountain pen run out on the judge mm-hmm. the english channel crossing the tragic death of a loved one right that all of these things you know and then and then you get to this point where the uh, at the end when valentine and the judge are, are really connecting and this is the first time we're there on the same physical plane instead of somebody standing and somebody sitting or, you know, like, like they, they make it this point to be together. And he says, I never loved another woman since this talking about after, um, after the woman he loved died, I stopped believing, or maybe I never met the woman. Perhaps I never met you. And you think about this idea that like, like you said, you know, they, they, their clocks are just 40 years off, you know, and, and had, had this been a different situation, and it makes you wonder, like, did he miss his Valentine? Like, like, is there a doubling of her that he didn't miss? So this gets us into then fate, chance, and choice, right? Like, like, are they fated to have never met? Or is this about choices that he makes? Or is this about chance? And, 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 and also, when are, those ch- when are those chance encounters fate and when are they not? So doesn't it, it, Valentine says something to Michelle, right? If I mm-hmm. hadn't just stepped out, we never would have met. 
but that doesn't appear to be a fit. I mean, that, that appears to be a fateful relationship rather than a fated relationship. So it's hard to know when those chance encounters are actually the hand of fate and when they're just simply chance. And that conversation that she and the judge are having at the end, I want to note there's a, another, there's a really, really interesting shot that says everything visually. And that is they're, they're sharing that you know, cup of awful coffee and shot is you see the two cups of coffee side by side with exactly the same amount of coffee in each one. It's one of those details that Kislowski just just loves. And also at the beginning of that conversation, when he tells her the, her, the story about dropping the book from the balcony, the way the camera the way the camera pans down to de- replicate the dropping of the book that's just that's just kind of a wonderful a wonderful moment. Um, so thinking about this, you know, fate chance choice. Um, I, I, I think it's interesting in one of the earlier, I think it's maybe the first time when they're talking um, and he, you know, it's revealed that he's, or this would be the second time. Cause it's revealed that he's been looking or listening into his, his neighbors. And then she was going to go talk to the, um, the family that lived over, you know, down the street. And then she encounters the wife and the daughter and can't bring herself to do it. And he says, you know, whether I listen in or not, whether you tell them or not, it, it sort of, it doesn't matter. It's not going to make any difference. This story is playing out mm. as it is playing out. Um, you know, and he makes such a declarative statement, but then, I, but it also, it's like, but th- that doesn't mean that's true. Like, like, is it true that it doesn't matter or, or is that just his, the take he has fallen into about his understanding of fate or destiny or things like that, that like, that this is kind of meaningless or, or is there a meaning to our choices? And it makes me think of the the story of the sailor. Mm-hmm. So the judge tells a story of a, of a couple of his cases. He says his first case, he acquits this this sailor who is um, who he later realizes is guilty, and he follows this guy's life, and he realizes that he sort of settles down and has this happy, peaceful life. So then you get this question of, well, he did he he was wrong, but by doing that he did right by getting something wrong. So then the question is like, is right and wrong a thing, you know, like, 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 is there, are, are, are we overstating that? And so we get to this point later where he says to judge what is true or not seems like a lack of humility. And then they both, they, they correct that to vanity, you know, yeah. to say like, like, like is, is what we're doing here a kind of vanity as well? Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting that Kislowski was asked whether or not he was a moralist. Uh, and Kislowski rejected the label because he hated the idea of morality. He was in a, you know, you and I talked uh, in our first conversation about his relationship with, with uh, religious belief, with Christianity in particular. And he had a very, um, he had a very ambivalent relationship with it. Uh, he probably would have called himself an agnostic, and yet he's continually interested in some of the moral questions that that uh that are that we wrestle with but he didn't want to call himself a moralist uh but he would somebody said well are you a metaphysician and he said he would accept that label so you know one of the obvious things about the judge is um the judge as as is true i think as well in white the judge is a uh, is a figure for kislowski in particular and he's a figure probably for the director in general. But one of the dangers or one of the, 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 the risks of being a judge and being in that position of being able to overlook people's lives and yet know yourself so intimately is 
is to fall into the kind of cynicism the judge has fallen into. And I think the Kisovsky struggled with as well. You know, the idea that, well, people are all kind of just really rotten. Um, and I'm as rotten as the rest of them. And so I'm just going to behave in a rotten way because we're all rotten. Um, and so one of the ways in which the film is a, is a romance is that when Valentine, you know, we don't have to say anything more about her name, right? When Valentine comes into his life, she kind of restores this notion in him or awakens him this possibility that maybe there could be genuine love and maybe love could have a kind of redemptive effect. And, and even if it's too late for him, it's not too late for her. Although it's not really too late for him either, right? Because he turns himself in. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and he, you know, he comes to believe that he does actually need to pay the price for what he's done. So I think that that's, you know, we think about the film as Valentine's story, but it's, it, I think you can also, re, you can also read it as the judge's story. Um, and that's where, you know, you, that's where the theme of fraternity really comes about. And they're able to have this deeply, um, intimate relationship that never has any, there's never any question that it's going to become anything more than a platonic relationship. Yet at the same time, I mean, there's, there's one scene where he gets really close to her. In fact, there's one scene where he puts his arms up on the, on the door jam and she kind of steps back like, oh, it's just a physical advance, right? It's the only time it seems to feel that way. Otherwise, I think that this is really, you know, the, a, a deep investigation into fraternity. And even though that's a masculine term, uh, the relationship between the two of them is really a kind of intimacy that fraternity actually implies, which is we are all responsible for each other, um, which is why I thought maybe the Budenmeier portrait was actually Rousseau, because it seems a very Rousseauian idea. Hmm. Uh, it's, it's also interesting, you know, and when you when the judge is asking Valentine questions uh, when they're talking, this would be the second time, I think. Um, <clears throat> he asks her why she saved Rita. Mm -hmm. And that was such a gut punch moment because I mean, this also, I mean, it is thinking about like, um, you know, the judge as the, the double for the storyteller or the director. Right. Because he's like, okay, well, did you do it for Rita? Did you do it for me? Did you do it for yourself? Cause you felt guilty. So like you were trying to, you know, do something for yourself. And then I feel like that question gets doubled back at the end when he's talking about, his judgment of Hugo Hobling. And he says, you know, it was a justified verdict. Like he makes it a point to say, like, I found him guilty and it is legally justifiable that I found him guilty. But there is this sense that it's like, but did I do it because I knew he was guilty or did I do it because this, because I had a moment to exact revenge. Did I actually do it for me, not for this abstract sense of justice? So thinking about revenge made me think about uh, Carol Carroll a little bit. It's like, you know, is, is the judge have part of that? And so I was like, oh, it's actually interesting because you have that moment. But then you also think about the judges. You know, the thing he says is after that, I I, I asked for early retirement. So there's this sense of like once the, the woman he loved dies, he kind of retreats into his job. Once he has this revenge, he kind of retreats from life in general which makes him feel like a little doubling of Julie a little bit too. Like, right. Mm -hmm. Like I've had this tragedy in my life. So now I'm going to just shut everything off, you know, and, and Valentine is to your point is the person who kind of uh, breaks through, uh, breaks through into this shut off world, whether he necessarily wants it or not. Um, you know, that, 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 that 
she breaks through his his kind of asceticism that that he has set up in his house. That's why it's such a great scene when he gets the car out. There's this sense mm. that that Mercedes has not been driven for a long time, you know, but but he's he's going back out into the world. I found it interesting uh, that it was a green Mercedes. I found it interesting that that Kieslowski chose not to make the car either red, white, or blue. Oh, sure. Um, but 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 green. I, I don't do it. You know, which is you know a traditional symbol of rebirth, I suppose. Um, and so it made it made me think a little bit about uh, pulling out the car in uh, in Sunset Boulevard. Uh, yeah, kind of you know emerging from from the shell. You know, the, the other thing I find interesting about the judge and kind of the connection that he makes with the world. Through through Valentine, um, and 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 they do have that scene as he's driving away in the car where they both put their hands on the glass, which reminds me of there's a scene in White where you see their two hands reaching out towards each other in the hotel room, um, but the glass is between them. It's interesting because the next time he sees her is through glass because he's watching her on the TV. Um, so it's interesting to me that he retreats into a med- he he goes back into a mediated relationship with the world, but this time it's not through the radio; it's actually through the TV. And the TV in this case is actually a really, is actually a really key piece of communicating with the world because it gives them the information he needs about Valentine and Auguste's um, uh, survival. Well, glass is really interesting in this movie. There's a lot of, mm-hmm. um, you know, glass. To your point, can be a separator. So, like you said, that their hands are separated. Auguste watches Karen's infidelity mm-hmm. through windows twice right both when he's looking in on her apartment and at the restaurant um the judge talks about seeing himself being betrayed in a mirror so you know glass again um and then you know there's a lot of looking out of windows right that 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 is this thing between that between us and other parts of the world but then there's also a lot of broken glass in this movie um so after the judge can judge's confession, right? His windows start getting broken. Mm-hmm. Um, now, what's interesting is at the very end, as he's looking out on the world, he's looking through a broken window, right? So it's no longer this mediated thing. So maybe even in his confession, right? He's that's bringing bringing about the breaking down of this this thing which mediates us from the world. Um, the great broken glass at the uh, bowling alley. Yeah. That's one of the just amazing scenes. And again. We know what that means without them needing to tell us what that means. It's it's perfect and so quick, um, you know. So so and then and then we get other other moments of broken glass. One was edit. One was a weird edit where, um, at one point when he's talking about writing the letters, the camera moves away from them into the billiard table, and we see this broken jar, which apparently is about a story the judge told, which got edited out. So we, he, they kept that shot in there. So it feels very mysterious. Like what was in that jar? What was that? But, but, but I, I do think it is interesting that glass both separates, but then this is also a movie about breaking glass, which is maybe um, uh, leading to different kinds of connection. Yeah. I, I want to go back to the bowling alley scene um, for a minute, because to me, that is one of the most astonishing it, well, it's astonishing in several respects. You have two kind of bravura shots. You've got the shot following the, the red bowling ball going down the, out the alley. And then the camera pans back and then it dollies left and you see the, the pack of cigarettes. As you know, right away, that's August. And you see the broken beer glass. And so something's happened. And that's that. I mean, it's, it is told with such economy. And again, with such 
both faith in the audience that we're going to be able to follow Kislowski's lead. So again, there is a there was a scene of Augustin Karin having having their breakup scene in a drenching rain, and it was taken out. And again, that was a really good decision. I, I'm much more interested in what the broken glass and the cigarette pack tell me than I am in seeing them actually face to face in the rain. In another scene that, as I think about it, actually does involve broken glass as well as we get the return of the old woman recycling the bottle, right? And, and so in both blue and white, we see Julie and Carol, um, <clears throat> Julie kind of not even noticing the woman, Carol uh, watching uh, as, they're, as the them struggle to sort of put it in, but having a kind of distance from it. And here we see Valentine walking up and helping. And we notice when that bottle goes in, you hear the sound of the glass breaking too. Mm-hmm. You know, so so if if the breaking of glass is about the creation of a kind of connection potential or or the possibilities of new connections, that's that's definitely there. Um, I want to talk about the coda a little bit. Um, because this is something that uh I mean we 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 talked a bit about this, but I think at the time there were some folks who looked at it and was like, well, that actually feels a little too neat that 1400 people die, but you know, the six people from these movies are, are among the seven people who survive. So it's, so it seems like, okay, in a movie that's talking about like fate and chance, I guess that could happen. Um, But as you mentioned, you know, if you see this as, I mean, it is the first thing shot in the movie, but also if you see this as like, what if the movie, what if this, the trilogy started with this scene mm. and then said, we're going to tell you the stories of these people. Mm-hmm. Well, that would be like, then it wouldn't seem neat at all. Mm-hmm. Right. It would be like, well, of course we're not going to tell the stories of the other people. We're going to tell the stories of these people. Um, and we end up seeing what brought them to that moment and, and, and maybe think about how they launch, uh, launch after this. It's also not particularly neat for the 1400 other people who died on the boat. Right. Right. Um, but it's why I find it interesting that the bartender also survives that it's not the yeah. six people from the movie, but there is this sense that there's a bigger world out there too. Yeah, exactly. Um, then the movie ends on this scene on the TV that doubles the, the gum poster mm-hmm. or the gum, the gum billboard. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you make of that doubling? That's a, so such an interesting, like, like moment. Um, well, yeah, it, 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 it's, no, it's another one of those um, coincidences, fates, because, you know, the whole point of the poster and the whole, um, name of the campaign is Breath of Life, and 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 so it, it just sounds like a you know so so you have this question of well so when this photographer is taking this picture and they're naming this Breath of Life and then later on you have the actual literal picture of her having having the Breath of Life being saved from the fairy what does that mean is that is that just one of those Dickensian coincidences? Or does it tell you there's some kind of order to the fabric of the universe that somehow that what what she was doing in making the ad was foreshadowing? Was it causing it? You know, was there a backward causation? Was because the disaster in the ferry was going to happen? Is that somehow how the photographer was inspired to create the poster? So I think that's that's how Kislowski is a metaphysician, right? Because there are no answers to those questions. Mm-hmm. What I mean, it's interesting to me that. Kisnowski may have been an agnostic or whatever, but he he sees a really interesting world. 
in, in which there are there is so much going on that we cannot begin to, you know, even though he appears to arrange things neatly, I think when he arranges things neatly, he does so to suggest that there may be an order that's beyond our grasp. And all we're seeing is maybe a little bit of that order. Um, and so I just I, I just love that doubling, that chiming, because it tells me there's there's sense in the world, even though sometimes these things don't seem to make any sense. Uh, I, there, there are, I counted at least 18 examples of red objects in, in, in the film. Um, it, it, it became kind of a distraction after a while trying to count them all up. But, but I love, for example, when she's on the phone with Michelle and she's eating the yogurt, there's a red cherry on the yogurt, right? And then later when she plays the slot machine, all the red cherries line up. Mm -hmm. And then she says, that's a bad sign. So is that because of her, is that, is that commenting on a relationship with Michelle that somehow she thinks anyway. So I just love the fact that uh, Kozowski isn't saying it's fate or chance. He's saying it's fate and chance. Right. Um, yeah. Now, one of the interesting things about this movie, this, this movie is very well received. Um, they take it to the Cannes film festival in 1994 and it doesn't win uh, because this is the year of Pulp Fiction. So Pulp Fiction wins. Um, but apparently even Tarantino said, uh, maybe maybe this <laughs> should have won. Um, uh, I'm not sure about that. But um, that that's from the, uh, the the folks who made Red are claiming Tarantino said that. Yes, yes. Um, now, what's interesting, though, is this movie is not nominated for Best Foreign Language Film for a very interesting reason in that it's basically a stateless movie. Mm -hmm, it mm -hmm. is not. So it's determined to be not French enough to be out in France, not Polish enough, but also it's not really Swiss either. So so it it is disqualified, be, it, which which is kind of a perfect E. I mean, the, the EU runs throughout this as well, the, the creation of the EU. And it's kind of a perfect image of that, too. It's like if there is this sense of like a growing a growing one Europe, you know, it's like, well, you know, this movie exists outside of the the, the idea of a state to a certain degree. So I kind of love that. Now, it is nominated for some major awards though it's nominated for best cinematography very well deserved for best screenplay very well deserved and for best director mm -hmm. which i found really interesting that that it doesn't it, there that it is it is kind of for bureaucratic reasons shut out from best foreign language but that it gets a best director nod is a pretty big deal it is um so do you have other things you want to talk about with this movie a small thing and then a little bit of a bigger thing um small thing is just i love the fact that the cafe is named shay joseph which of course is the judge's first name um but the, the bigger thing i want to say is um there's there's a really good book on kislowski called double lives second chances the cinema of christoph kislowski by uh, a film professor annette insdorf who actually got to know kislowski and did translation for him um and she talks in her chapter about the about the film, and Ebert alludes to this: the idea that the judge is a um, is a Prospero-like figure, hmm. uh, and I think that this works in a couple different ways um, within the world of the film. The fact that the uh, the judge, as as Prospero does, appears to orchestrate a storm, uh, which is why you might want to forgive the idea that only a few people survived the wreck because that was the plan all along. Although, of course, in The Tempest, everybody survives the wreck. Um, you know, he's the one that tells you she has to get the, the ferry ticket, which, of course, is red. Um, and he also has this kind of 
godlike control or at least this godlike surveillance uh, you know as prospero uses ariel uh to to spy on people the judge uses his uh his radio set so there's a sense in which and also in in the tempest the prospero has to come to the place where he will forgive all his enemies uh in the same way in which the judge comes to a kind of a reawakening of of, of love and of course prospero is doing everything for the sake of his daughter uh uh, Miranda and the judge is doing this for the sake of um, his kind of his adopted daughter Val Valentine. In fact, she says that to him right after she hits the dog. He she hits the dog. She says, "You wouldn't have said you you wouldn't have even cared if it was your daughter." And I think that's an opening to her becoming his adopted daughter. Now, the other way in which he, of course, is Prospero-like is uh, the the Tempest is usually considered Shakespeare's farewell to the theater. Prospero has a closing speech, which seems which is in which he is. Uh, abjuring what he calls his rough magic, and that's usually taken as the magic of, of uh, playwriting. And this, of course, was famously and is uh, Kiszowski's last film. Uh, and when you hear Kiszowski describe his life after filmmaking, he says he wants to sit uh, sit in his garden and smoke. Uh, and you can imagine him being the judge who's, uh, of course, he's sitting in his house and smoking, but they both seem to have chosen uh, early retirement. Uh, and sadly, of course, Kozlowski never did make another film. Another argument for why Kozlowski retired, well, he said he was tired, and he was. He basically worked himself to death. Um, but he also felt like it was his crowning achievement. Maybe he couldn't have made a better film. Uh, but, you know, he was only 53. Who knows what else he could have given us? Absolutely. I just want to say say two other little um, film, con well, three film connections here. Uh, they make reference to a Peter Weir, Weir film. So we've we've talked about Peter Weir on this this series. They she, she mentions going to Steve oh, yeah, Poet Society. Right, so, yeah. <clears throat> but there are two really great shots in this movie that I feel like get picked up in later 90s films uh, you mm. talked about the bowling alley shot right. oh the yeah tracking yeah. shot i mean that is very big lebowski you know that's going to be about four years later and then the opening shot of going through the phone line david fincher does that in fight club in 1999 that's the mm. same idea of like you see somebody on a phone and all of a sudden we're in the wall in the phone oh, line yeah. so 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 fincher picks up that idea as well i have to say one more thing and that is um one of my uh, sources of information is David Thompson has done a biographical dictionary of film. Uh, I've mentioned Thompson before. He and I have very different tastes and he can be extremely irritating. Um, yeah, but his entry on Kislowski, he talks about the, the very element that you and I have been talking so admiringly about, about how Kislowski constructs this world and how carefully everything's put together and how it rewards all these multiple viewings. And Thompson says something about it's also perfect. It makes me want to scream. <laughs> and it's just, just interesting to me that, you know, the way in which um, some one person's art is like another person's artifice and it's just too much. Whereas I feel like it can, I think he says something in there about, you know, it, it's like all the life has been taken out of it. And I don't feel that way at all. I feel like he's put so much life into it. Absolutely. 100% agree with you. Uh, Barrett, we need to close the show. I'm not going to make you rank red, white, and blue, but we are going to be talking about rankings next week. Um, so for next week, we're not going to watch a film. Instead, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the 2022 Sight and Sound list uh, was released last week. Now, before the list came out, Barrett and I each did our ballots, our 10 films we would nominate. So we're going to spend next week's episode diving into the Sight and Sound list um, and, uh, and, and sort of looking at how this list really changes, uh, sh shows a change in the landscape of uh, 
of world cinema, you know, since it's in the last 10 years. So, um, so tune in for that uh, next week and then we'll end that that uh with some recommendations uh as well and and our next movie uh for when we move into january barrett thank you so much for um recommending this film and for these three films these are really really important movies to me um i was talking with my wife about them and i was like we just we need to go watch we need to watch these movies again we need to sit down and i I can't wait to revisit all of them um and uh, like i said i was a little nervous when we started was i gonna was this gonna be a slog and it was not these are these are beautiful movies um, with so much to think about and so much to talk about. So thank you for recommending this. Thank you for the conversation. We will be back next week to talk about the 2022 sight and sound list in the video store. Mm-hmm.